0: I'm Catherine. I'm Charles. And this is Cosmos Cosmos in the the cosmos. Cosmos. So, this is my friend Charlie. And, Charlie, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So Catherine and I went to university together where we were next door neighbors and frequent settlers of Catan combatants. I'm now working in occupational health and safety for air cargo industry in Chicago, and I really like hard sci-fi. I've also, I've just loved historical fiction. So things that bring the two of them together, like to say nothing of the dog and the blackout series are great for that, and Canogal for Libwitz is my favorite book, and this is only my second time reading it.
0: Yeah, well, I read this twice for the podcast, too, so, which I don't usually read stuff more than once, but I couldn't resist. Also, if listeners, if you hang on for a little bit, in three episodes from now, I believe, you're going to get to meet Simon, who was Charlie's roommate, who also lived next to me freshman year.
1: Yes, and was, I would say, the second best Catan player after Catherine. And I would sometimes i would I would jump in there with an upset, thanks to thanks to Longest Road and Largest Army.
0: I played Catan recently and realized that I hadn't played for like years, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, what has happened to me?"
1: I once beat Doug on his birthday at the at the Perry household. It was his birthday, and we were playing Settlers of Catan, and I won. And I refused to let him win just because it was his birthday. I
0: mean, I I wouldn't want someone to let me win just because it's my birthday. So you know, good for you.
1: No, no, absolutely. It was good. He needed to be humbled too.
0: Last time I played, I, I came very close to winning, but Alexei's two girlfriend edged me out because, well, Alexei told me that my road was 14 long and I just like believed him. And then we looked and realized that my road was actually like 11 long. So she had I had actually like, won the previous turn. And we are like, wow. Yeah, it was a big deception on Alexei's part to make sure that his girlfriend lost Katan.
1: Nice. Elaborate. I respect that.
0: But yeah, so you are the only person that I know who have read and loved this book who was not raised Catholic or is currently Catholic.
1: I'm not even a little bit religious and I adore this book.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was kind of fun. So... I guess just first off, what were your like first things that you thought about upon finishing this book?
1: I think that the the prose of this book is gorgeous. And I think the fact that it's the three separate books and each have their own variations Mm. in voice is just absolutely lovely. I remember, I believe I'm trying to I'm trying to remember which I read first because I know I had to read Cormac McCarthy's The Road for school. And I don't remember if I read Leibowitz or The Road first. I think I read Leibowitz first. And then when I was in class, you know, in my high school English class, I just couldn't stop thinking about how clearly The Road was a continuation of, I, I think, a vein that this this book opened. So for me, I think the the nature imagery is just impeccable to me. I love the world building. Um, the details that we get especially in in Fiat homo of the way we learn about this post-nuclear america and how it's all satirical like it's all very purposefully heightened but it feels incredibly honest
0: yeah he really has an amazing wit <laughs> with
1: yes yeah i mean you know things like things like you know that i i, I don't remember from the first time like i was i was shocked and delighted by prior Cherokee. Like, and I hadn't picked up on it that the prior's name is Cherokee. And the other thing is just how I think prescient this book was about Mm anti-intellectualism. And for someone who I have not read the Bible fully, but I have existed in in America, so I've gotten so much of it through cultural osmosis. Just the the obvious echoes here of the, you know, of, of biblical imagery, but then also the subtler ones that I think, you know, had I been raised Catholic, this stuff would have really been obvious to me, but not being raised Catholic, I'd be like, oh, okay, and making these connections. It's just, it feels like a fun little puzzle.
0: So did you learn, did you enjoy learning about the canonization process?
1: Yes, yeah, immensely. I mean one of my favorite details well like they have you know they have the devil's advocate come and i love that they mention that he has small horns and and fanged teeth and there's something delightful about that and also how they're incredibly rude to him in very subtle ways like how they're just they're just subtly being assholes to him being like oh we can't give you the nice room because it has smallpox and we can't find any quail this season for some reason. So you'll just have to eat gruel. That's crazy. Things like this. But also there's that element of like, okay, but mutants do exist. So like, is it possible that he does literally have small horns and fang teeth? Absolutely.
0: So is it possible? Yes. Well, they do mention though, when he goes and sees Francis's blueprint, it says that his, um, uh fangs and horns for tracks lately because he sees that and he's like ah this is so pretty
1: yes well i do love that it's i think this this book is brilliant in that it's a world in which magic exists from the perspective of the characters you know because of the, the whole adage of sufficiently advanced technology is um uh indecipherable from magic i forget the exact language but there's all these things where it's like yeah you know the 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 fear of the fallout as being a a monster Mm -hmm. that stalks the plains and you know the the imagery of of the heathens in the pacific northwest who are nine feet tall and like all of this all of this imagery that you get in you know in pre-modern european folklore and then just having it recontextualized to you know to utah and and the the former united states but 600 years in the future, I think is, is, is brilliant.
0: Yeah. I mean, he really was such a smart man, (laughs) the way he wrote.
1: Yeah. Now here's, there's something I picked up on. I don't know if you're going to get to this later with your questions or anything. So the, the, I mean, the, the man, the pilgrim uh, is the wandering Jew. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and reappears. And the implication is also that he's, he's Leibowitz or that it's you know that's that's the the rumor at the abbey is that he is lebowitz because Leibowitz, of course obviously jewish which which is just a phenom- another phenomenal detail like there's another there's another person with an asian american name at one point like there's all these these figures who reading it for us we know that they are not like who we think of as a historical catholic saint i love that is Leibowitz explicitly, do you think, based on when this book was written, is he supposed to be Oppenheimer?
0: Hmm. I hadn't actually thought about that, but it's funny because I did talk about Oppenheimer a little bit with Paul, but it didn't actually occur to me that he was, because he's Lazarus, right? So I think we were thinking about him very much in the biblical context. But now that you say that, I feel like at least indirectly he is, because he he's clearly trying to do penance for making something
1: i don't know if he's explicitly oppenheimer or if he's because uh, they say i mean you know he has these he has these electronics diagrams i think he's probably not explicitly oppenheimer but he's i mean he, he built the bombs like he's that's that's explicit i guess he's just more one of the one of the group of scientists who helped build the bombs who were who were largely jewish
0: I feel like it's. I feel like it's less likely that he was that important. I think he was just one of these people that maybe at the beginning he was like, "Nah, this is a bad idea," and then everyone else was like, "No, just get in line," and he just followed it and he didn't really at all think about where it was going to go. I feel like we don't always realize how many people it took to build the atomic bomb. Like, it wasn't just one person who is just like, I'm brilliant and this idea comes out. And so it's kind of like one of these things where so many people had to make this agreement within themselves that they were going to help make something that could potentially destroy humanity. And I can kind of see how living in a time where people had done that would like, had just done that, would really make you write something as dark as this.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, especially I love the there's a Description of mutually assured destruction put in the language of biblical plague. The, I mean, it's just there. Are these that's that's one of these things is that there are these passages of just the little sort of politics and and the farce of living at an abbey. I also I don't know why I love fiction that takes place in an abbey. Which again is very funny because there's so much of it that I do not understand, but I mean we're talking Redwall, we're talking oh I can't remember it's it's a Welsh book and it's like a murder mystery series.
0: You'll have to figure that one out later and tell me because I don't think I know that one. I mean I also enjoy stuff in Abbey since I I love the Redwall series too. I think I read like all thirty five of those at least twice as a child.
1: Yes. Oh, I mean just I I the 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 badgers and the otters and the hares with the uh with the british accents and just all of it was was wonderful
0: yeah i went through a phase when i was like i don't know like 10 or 11 like whenever i was like really into reading those where i would ask my parents like every day like why did we have like tea in the afternoon <laughs> they would be like catherine stop bothering us and i would be like but everyone in this series has tea and scones why can't we
1: yeah, no, and and cordials.
0: Oh yes.
1: Just cordials, cordials for every meal. I can't recall. I'll 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 find it and I'll I'll let you know later. Saint, oh sorry, not a uh, brother. It's the brother something series, I believe. I don't think I have the books with me, but but an excellent series where it's this it's this monk who was formerly a crusader and is now basically solving murder mysteries around. The first one, he's he's, he's at uh, Shrewsbury Abbey. In uh in West England. Cadfell. Brother Cadfell. C-A-D-F-A-E-L. Oh, it was written by a woman under a man's pen name, I believe. Edith Pargetter Pergeter under Alice Peters. Okay. The Cadfell Chronicles. Very good. Very fun. Lots of uh Welsh Welsh names.
0: Oh that's so cool. Maybe we'll do an episode on those someday. <laughs>
1: but yes, back to the Back to the, the mutually assured, can I read you the, the specific passage? Okay. This is, in my copy, it's page 61, chapter 6, uh, in Fiat Homo. It was said that God, in order to test mankind, which had become swelled with pride as in the time of Noah, had commanded the wise men of that age, among them the blessed Libuets, to devise great engines of war such as had never before been upon the earth. Weapons of such might that they contained the very fires of hell, and that God had suffered these magi to place the weapons in the hands of princes, and to say to each prince, Only because the enemies have such a thing that have we devised this for thee, in order that they may know that thou hast it also, and fear to strike. See to it, my lord, that thou fearest them as much as they shall now fear thee, that none may unleash this dread thing which we have wrought. But the princes, putting the words of their wise men to naught, thought each to himself, If I but strike quickly enough, and in secret, I shall destroy those others in their sleep, and there will be none to fight back, the earth shall be mine. Such was the folly of princes, and there followed the flame deluge.
0: I love that they're called princes.
1: Yeah, and, it's, and the, the scientists are magi. I, I, and it's just, just remarkable to me like i think it's one of the most beautiful and haunting descriptions of nuclear war that i've ever read the following page Mm -hmm. and and that's you know that's also where we get the explanation of simpletons and the the simplification and everything for the first time where it's you know really laid out and we only get that 60 pages into the book
0: yeah it's very the history of this book is very winding around and uh, uh you know you really i at least I don't know if you were different when you read this, but the first time I read this, I really did not think that this book was going to go further than Francis. I thought we were just going to watch Francis for a while.
1: Yeah, no, and then we get these, you know, you know, a moderate time skip and then an insane time skip. And I mean, yeah, I guess even in even in how it's written within each book, I guess that's that's one of the glories of the the serialized publishing nature of the you know the 1950s fiction magazines the the circular nature of history is of course i think Mm -hmm. you know the central one of the central theses of the book but even in how they're written with these ways that you know we get the we get the immediate and then we get their past sort of echoing through the course of each book i think is is quite clever
0: yeah and it also really it does feel like he changes his writing for each short story Mm-hmm. Like in the first one he's like talking about pilgrims with girded loins. Yeah. No one's t- talking about pilgrims with girded loins in the second two stories.
1: Yes, and I also love that it explicitly mentions it's like no one had ever actually seen a pilgrim with girded loins before.
0: <laughs> it's just something they talked about.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, and that that makes sense for it to be, you know, Lazarus and and to have this this sort of primordial knowledge of of pilgrimage.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the ideas in this book that Lazarus is here and even though Jesus raised him from the dead, he doesn't accept like Jesus as the Messiah and he's still waiting for the Jewish Messiah? Hmm,
1: that's interesting. Well, I think that presupposes that presupposes that the Lazarus in this book has the same canon as our Lazarus. And I think there might be something to be said that the that radiation is kind of the Holy Ghost in this mm-hmm. novel. like in that there's there's the, the sort of immutability of, of, of radiation that, that becomes a form of magic. So I mean, I think there's something to be said to that of, okay, well, the, the nature of things is destroyed. I think that because this is a sick world, that it makes sense that you know Lazarus would not find peace. You know, that that things would not work out the way they're supposed to, and that the cycle continues because we can't get it right, and we keep trying, and we, you know, we get even farther the next time, but we still can't get it right.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, because do you know the story of Lazarus from the Bible well?
1: Not, Not terribly well.
0: Well, so he is a good friend of Jesus's, and Jesus goes to visit him and finds him dead, and is... So upset that he performs this miracle that it's kind of implied he's maybe not really supposed to be doing, but like he really likes this guy, and then he like leaves him like really happy with like his family and friends and goes on his journey. And it's kind of interesting because like the Lazarus in this is this like bitter old man by himself. So it's like this idea, I guess to some extent, of Mm -hmm. was it a blessing to be raised? Like is that necessarily what he would have wanted.
1: Mhm. I mean, I think it's you could kind of see that with the image of the bomb of fission and fusion at the time of of the Pandora's box of okay, we have we have unleashed an unnatural and unholy energy that is unbelievably powerful that would, you know, in theory solve all of the world's problems. You know, they were going to they were going to dig canals using nuclear bombs, and everything was going to be atomic. And you would have small modular reactors. I mean, that's not what they were called at the time. That's a new concept. But you know, you would have you'd have small reactors everywhere. And so, like the peaceful uses of nuclear energy was was a lot of how it was how it was spun. I forget when the DOE was was created from the AEC, but I mean, they were both called the Atomic Energy Commission and the Department of Energy. Like they were that was how they were spun.
0: Yeah, it it was 1946.
1: I think that's a direct parallel. I think it's okay, we have we have the blessing of this unimaginable power and the thing that we did not expect from it is okay, he's brought back and now I mean if his family's not there, well he he was brought back and now he can't die. So everyone he everyone he's loved can die. Um and and has died. And so now he's, you know, he's effectively cursed by this blessing to wander the earth.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because the first time you meet him, he's just like this silly old man. And then the more you learn about him, the more you realize just like how terribly old he is and how terrible his life has been.
1: Yes, just impossibly old. But it's also kind of funny that he's, I mean, he's pretty reasonable when we first meet him. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, even before we learn that there's anything special about him, You know, he's, he comes upon this, this really young novice, what he's, how old is, is Francis at the start? Like
0: 20, maybe?
1: Younger than 20. Yeah, I think 20 or younger. So this very young novice and, and, and Francis startles, Francis scares him. Francis sneaks up on him. He tries. That's, that's the introduction.
0: And then he still tries to give Francis some of his bread and cheese. And then Francis just throws holy water on him.
1: Yeah, he's, he's, he's being visited by the spirit and being offered kindness and panics.
0: Well, it's funny also because, so this whole scene is that Francis is sent out for Lent, right? Yes. And it just, I think part of the reason why I found that scene so funny when he's like looking at the food is it made me think of the things that I would give up as a child that I would look at so sadly. Like there was one year that I gave up like chocolate for Lent. And I remember watching my sister eat like a chocolate bar in front of me as like a seven year old and just being so sad.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's the it's the Lent connection.
1: Yes. Well, I also love that, you know, because he has this interaction, he then has to, he has to do the same, you know, the Lenten fast and go out in the desert every year for seven years, which no one else has to do. Basically he's punished, he's punished for, for this miraculous discovery
0: and it's funny that it's 7 years because i don't you, i don't know if you would have picked up on this but so many things in the bible people have to do for 7 years so it's very it's a very biblical number and there's all those funny little things like that
1: yeah i think moving forward one of the other things that gets me about this book when i reread it is the well no the, the first time i read it even it's brutal it is i think realistic in a way that you don't expect based on mm-hmm. sort of the beauty of the language
0: and the start.
1: Yeah, but I mean the, you know, there's there aren't a lot of books where you're introduced to a character and then their story ends with them being shot to death by mutants, you know, on a road. Like you don't get a lot of ignominious ends like that to these, you know, learned like religious characters all that often. I think that's a great, especially because it comes when we're, you know, we've moved into, into fiat lux and we, we're recreating, you know, the, the inventions of our ancestors, but an arrow will still kill you.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's like my brother was saying this, which it didn't even quite strike into my brain until he said this, but there are three stories in this book and each of them end with our beloved main character being brutally killed. Yes. (laughs) and it's like wow but which of the stories was your favorite and which of the abbots was your favorite
1: i don't know i don't like i don't like akros that much i mean it's he's he's fascinatingly political uh Arcos, excuse me he <laughs> i do i do really like that he threatens to kill francis with a rock i think that's very fun
0: yeah they have good conversations the two of them
1: i don't know who's your favorite
0: my favorite is paulo definitely which Mm -hmm. the the abbot in the second part because yeah well i think it's this mixture of he's dying and yet he as he is you know clearly dying clearly at the end of his life all that he like wants to do is like make sure the abbey is okay before he goes but then also, he just has all of these interesting scientific questions with him and Tantadio. So I was curious about what you thought about like if the information is something that should be locked away in the Abbey or if those are books that should be returned to the secular scientific community.
1: I don't remember that well the the tone that we get of how safe the world is for knowledge again. You know, B- before before the third book. Because um, what it's I think 3174 is is the year of the, or, you know, or at least the start of fiat bucks, I think it kind of doesn't matter. I think I think the it's, you know, it's history is doomed to repeat itself. In a sense, I guess in the universe of this book, humanity is fated to invent nukes and nuke ourselves. And so yeah, I guess I guess the question is, okay, would that accelerate? you know, the creation of nuclear weapons, if that if that goes back into the world, but that might be too much of a, I don't know, maybe that's too brutal of a view. But I I, I think there's certainly the implication that, okay, this is going to happen again, whether or not it matters. I don't know, because they even say, like, by the time we had protected all of this knowledge, people had created new knowledge, like that humanity, you know, the, the the people storing storing the books had had discounted the ability of humanity to create new culture. So I I think it's kind of, it doesn't really matter one way or another.
0: So do you believe there's any hope in this book? Do you think that there's any chance humans are going to break out of this cycle?
1: I think those are two different questions. I think there is hope in this book. I think that, well, also, it's just, it's the last line of the book, which is, I think, my favorite passage to end a book ever.
0: With the sharks?
1: Yeah, with the shark. This is when I first read *The Road*. I was like, "That is a canonical Freely Woods* because there's a passage about the fish in the mountain streams, uh, going hungry, but they don't die." And I think that's th- there are two reasons to believe that there's hope in this book. One is it ends with the it, it ends with the children, the children of Earth, being sent off. So I think that's I think that's inherently hopeful. I think you know that is that is the opportunity to start again and it is the implication that okay they've learned from this and they can they can prevent it i don't know if they will or not i don't really think the book gives us much of a reason to believe but i think it's sort of that cycle of of sin and forgiveness over the course of the book of okay yeah noah's flood white washes us away and the select few of us rebuild our lives but more broadly i think there's hope because uh the shark swam out to his deepest waters and brooded in the old clean currents he was very hungry that season that's not the end for that shark
0: it's true there's the word clean but that does contrast with all the buzzards dying which is different for the first two books
1: but the buzzards i mean you know the buzzards are feasting on the dead humans and the shark is not like the shark the shark is in his natural place he's in he's in his old currents
0: that's true so you talk when you talk about hope in this book you talk about the shark and you talk about the space the starship but what did you think about but what did you think about rachel is rachel hopeful to you
1: What is the story of Rachel? Both in the Old Testament sense, you know, because I think the the names of all of this are very purposeful. I mean, the you know, Lazarus figure is named Benjamin in the second book.
0: Well, Rachel is the wife of Jacob, his second wife, who he wants to marry her. And he works for seven years in the field. That's one of the big seven-year stories. And then he gets tricked into marrying her sister Leah and has to work for another seven years to marry her. But to my brother and me, we both, when we read this, we immediately went, oh, I understand Rachel is married because she is someone who has been born with completely innocent. And when the priest tries to baptize her, she knows to be like, oh, no, no, I don't need baptism. I'm too pure for that. And so I think to us, to some extent, we thought that potentially she was something new that might break the cycle.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, let's see. I have text, I have textual evidence for this. Well, it is interesting because a few pages before, you know, before he tries to, to baptize her, it does say when she's confessing, right? That is, yeah. Dom she spoke haltingly. He could not see her through the mesh that covered the grill. There was only the low and rhythmic whimper of a voice of Eve. The same, the same, everlastingly the same. And even a woman with two heads could not contrive new ways of courting evil, but could only pursue a mindless mimicry of the original. But, I mean, at the same point, that is just him describing, like, yeah, this is just this is just a woman. I suppose you could just read that as, this is just a woman, even though she's, she's a mutant woman, even though she, she has two heads, she's still a woman and she's still scared of the end of the world.
0: Yeah, but let me see if I can find... A little bit beyond that says that when he tries to give her the wafer, she puts it back in the thing. She used no conventional gestures, but the reverence with which she had handled it convinced him of one thing. She sensed the presence under the veil. She who could not yet use words or understand them had done what she had as if by direct instruction in response to his attempt at conditional baptism. And at the end, as... The final abbot is dying xerxes it says that he wept in gratitude because one glimpse of rachel had been a bounty
1: yeah he i i do really like paolo to go back to your earlier question i do really like paolo i do xerxes is is i think one of the i think he's he's probably the bravest though paolo is as well like i think he's he's one of the most selfless especially you know i mean that 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 this final mission is to save the children and and get them off the planet
0: yes But it's also for the continuation of the church, which to all these people comes above all else. So here's a question. Do you think that it is realistic that the Catholic Church would survive all these events to still be there at the end?
1: I mean, in this form, not necessarily. In some form, I think it's of, of all the organizations, it's way up there in likelihood to succeed. I think... Well, I mean, I I suppose we do we do get a sense of this sort of, you know, syncretic version of Catholicism that we get over time that they have, like that passage I read earlier, they have revisualized the flame deluge as a flood. I mean, even just the word deluge there is very, you know, Noah-esque. You know, I definitely think religion, especially organized religion, tends to survive extremely traumatic periods, albeit with, with quite a bit of changes. I mean, this, it is interesting. This book is, it's before Vatican II, right? So there's, there's a lot, and, and I, I don't know much about the, the history of the church here, but I know that that was, that was the period of sort of- Or no. Really? it
0: was right after, because Vatican II started October, 1962. So in when exactly, it was right at the time. You look up when exactly.
1: Uh, this is 1959.
0: Oh Yeah. Because it came out earlier than it went. Wow, so it did, it just preceded it.
1: Yeah, uh, trade paperback 1961. So I think that that probably would have some effect. I think it's interesting that, I mean, especially just with the amount of Latin in the book, I think that's somewhat reflective of it being a, during the, the more formalized period of the church, if my understanding of, of that whole process is correct, is that it was, you know, the prior to the use of, of English in the liturgy, and things like that. So there's an in- interesting timing there.
0: Yeah, it was a really big deal That Also, I just gotta say that this guy really was a visionary, because I didn't realize that this book came out so many years before it won the Hugo. So I totally thought that he wrote this during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he didn't. He wrote this right before the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Yeah, No. And I mean, even God, the concept of uh, when the concept of mutually assured destruction was not that old by that period, like by 1959, because I mean, mutually assured destruction was a concept that came out of Rand in the 50s in the early 50s. Because I mean, the Soviets didn't have their bomb until 49. Right? Yeah. Something like that. 46, 49. He this predates the uh, it's Hudson Institute, excuse me, not not Rand. I got my Cold War think tanks mixed up. Mutually assured destruction, coined by Donald Brennan in 1962 as a term. Conceptually, obviously it exists here. I mean, it's the concept of deterrence, which also exists in, you know, conventional war. But no.
0: This truly is one of the most fabulous books I've ever read.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's, I, I had never put that together, that it actually predates the popularization of the term mutually assured destruction. But, I mean... Walter Miller was a radio operator and tail gunner.
0: And I don't know if you know this, but these stories are based on an Italian Benedictine monastery that he bombed and they just killed a bunch of civilians.
1: Yeah, Monte Cassino. Yeah. Yeah, which was which was a huge I think it was the Eighth Air Force. Um, mm-hmm. that was that was some of their early daylight rating in in I think 1943 it would have been was the Italian campaign.
0: It was forty four, but you were.
1: It was forty four. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And if he was, he was in the tail. He would have seen it, as they flew by.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it probably haunted him forever.
1: Well, it also there's also doesn't it it also appears in Catch Twenty Two, doesn't it? I know it's the same campaign. I don't know if Monte Casino explicitly does.
0: They definitely talk about that campaign though.
1: Yeah, well, because Catch Twenty Two takes place in in the Italian campaign. Yes. I think Catch-22 takes place in late 43, because I think they primarily are doing missions over Sicily, but I'm not I'm not certain about that.
0: Yeah, I feel like I would have remembered if it was in Catch-22, but it's also been a long time. So, yeah. who knows? Either way, Catch-22 is very close to it. Yes. Wow, yeah, well, at the end of the 60s, I'm just going to do a short historical episode where i run through a lot of these events because so many of the books that won the hugo in the 60s are like about nuclear destruction. Yeah. But this is in the other ones though. They came they came after the idea was more popular. Wow. That's that's so cool. But okay. So i also did want to ask you about what your ideas are on this book's argument about the right for life that kind of goes through several of the stories, even if that life is radioactive hill people that are going to are going to eat your your hero.
1: Yeah, well, and that there's there's an explicit mention of abortion at the end, which I'm sure even in, I mean, in 59, to mention it in a book would have been wild. I mean, I guess it makes sense for it to be you know to be put in this context where it's uh perceived as the lesser of two evils because the world is ending
0: yeah but even as the world is about to end the abbot cersei is trying to convince people that are filled with radiation to not commit suicide
1: yeah well i mean he has he has does he has he has a he has a religious obligation for the concept that people who kill themselves don't go to heaven, right? Is that, that's that was doctrine? That is doctrine?
0: Yeah, it is. Some priests don't necessarily tell people that anymore, but it is technically. It's kind of like how, obviously it's dark doctrine that like homosexuality is a sin, but my uncle goes to a church that has like pride flags on the front. It's like a Catholic church in DC. So I think that a lot of priests would be more loose about it today
1: today yes but in yeah and especially because i think these stories there's an interesting element that all of these stories take place in the distant future and yet quite a few of them are more conservative than practiced religion would have been contemporary to this book's publication well because it is interesting that it's it's uh sort of reframing American catholicism as the new, like, center of gravity of global Catholicism that Rome has left Rome, uh, you know, that they mentioned that it moves, it's it, it makes its way across the sea to North America, and then it moves multiple times in two decades, where previously it had, had stayed unmoved for two, century, uh, two millennia. Also, I, I do just love that it's St. Louis. I forget if there's an explicit textual thing that says that but i believe i did the work on this and the place that makes the most sense for it to be a because i think it's on the banks of the mississippi it's like where the mississippi and the missouri meet which is saint louis
0: yeah i didn't put that together because it's not explicit but now that you say that that's absolutely what he would make it to because they're saint in the name so he'd be like ah oh, perfect
1: well yeah i mean i think the concept of life in the book is a tragic one you know, I think in many ways, the the mutants are just shown as another way in which the horrors of war affects civilians. And I think he would have had specific connection to that being, you know, doing strategic bombardment over over Europe.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he definitely, like, they didn't have a term for it at the time. But looking at his reading, looking at his life, looking at what the pe- way people talk about him, he definitely had some form of PTSD. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, I was reading about it, and he survived, like, over 50 missions. Oh, wow. Which is insane.
1: That's unbelievable. And a tail gunner is, I mean, incredibly dangerous position to be in.
0: So, he really probably saw some pretty terrible things. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. Do you think that he is saying that life is sacred, even if it is being radioactive yeah yeah
1: no absolutely i think i think he's very much advocating for you know for the quality of life of all people and i think that the i think it's an extremely angry book in that regard i think that it's incredibly sympathetic to mutated folks in in the book even if you know they're you know if they kill they kill francis but of course they kill francis And I mean, the that's the the descriptor of the one who kills Francis is is as the they advanced to within 10 yards of Francis before a pebble rattled. The monk was murmuring the third ave of the fourth glorious mystery of the rosary when he happened to look around. The arrow hit him squarely between the eyes. Eat, eat, eat. The pope's child cried.
0: And he's called the pope's child in that scene, too, which is so good.
1: Yeah. And it's also it reflects... Uh, when he sees his tired myopic eyes determined then that the wriggling iota was really a man but at too great a distance for recognition he shivered something about the iota was too familiar but no it couldn't possibly be the same because when he first sees the pilgrim in the first book he assumes that he's a mutant like a mutant highwayman and so then in his last moment one of the last things he sees is a mutant and he believes it to be to be the pilgrim who we then know as benjamin later
0: which you know I suppose it could be worse. I suppose there are worse ways to go.
1: Yeah, no, he he, he has an honorable death. He doesn't go as bad as Leibowitz. True. I guess there's something to be said that the book is sort of arguing about the futility of religion, you know, the futility of the religion in a horrible world. That they are they are saving this knowledge from the simplification. Hundreds of years go by, and no one cares about it they you know they don't have anyone to return it to because nobody wants it because new culture has sprung up and it takes you know hundreds of more years before they sort of reclaim some of the lost knowledge and they create the arc light and they you know they start sort of returning some of that that knowledge and so like they didn't you know and Leibowitz dies he's strangled and burnt simultaneously for having books with him and like and then that's that's for nothing in the near term in the medium term so i guess it's you know i mean for me from a from an atheist or agnostic point of view that's you know futility but i suppose that's also faith is the decision to suffer for 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 this belief and the knowledge that you know even if it doesn't do anything for a hundred years or a thousand years it's still you know in the capital l long term is important
0: do you believe that ultimately is important do you think that Leibowitz and all the people that sacrificed to protect this knowledge. Do you think what they did was worthwhile from the point of view of the book? I don't know if
1: we get an answer from the book on that.
0: No, but what do you think?
1: Again, I think it's sort of utilitarian answer of okay, by preserving this knowledge have you doomed humanity to repeat it? Basically, is there reason behind the the anti-intellectual desire to destroy the knowledge that caused the harm? Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's really the knowledge that caused the harm. It's the people that caused the harm. It is the, you know, God grants us these machines of unbelievable power and makes us swear to not use them for evil. And yet we always will, which is, I guess, you know, that's, that's original sin, right? Is the being granted knowledge and the inability to keep ourselves from it despite the consequences. So I don't know. I don't think it really matters. I, I think for the, you know, it's not ours to reason why it's just ours to do and die is sort of the is sort of the fate of humanity and yet the world is the world continues the book ends with an arc of catholic children being sent off into space as the last thrust of the plot and you know our antagonist in the third the third book is killed just as the martyrs before him. So that's this cycle of martyrdom repeats. And there's this possibility for a new future. But if it's a continuation of the same church, then isn't it a continuation of all of the things that we've read before? But to the shark, the shark doesn't care.
0: Well, my brother said that he thinks that there's also a possibility of a future that's just Lazarus and radioactive Jesus wandering around the dead world. So
1: yeah, and I mean, certainly the description of the end of the third book is sounds like they have significantly larger stockpiles of more powerful weapons than than the initial rounds and uh you know the use of fallout shelters even sounds less prevalent like it it's kind of a different approach to saving people
0: yeah it just it feels like the shelters where they send people to die are so clinical it's like they've they've normalized it and it it made me think about so. They've got these places where they send people if they have too much radiation. The sign that has written, they send these like novices to have signs that have written on them, abandon all hope you enter here <laughs> from Dante Inferno. And that makes me think about that. And even though it's, you know, I don't know, it's, it's obviously not anything like this. It just, it couldn't help make me think about sending people to like extermination camps in World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. And just, like, the government is now doing it for people. But telling them it's kindness, which makes it complicated.
1: No, I think it's a direct connection. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's another part of the book that's extremely that's full of rage is at I do think that Miller is quite angry at governments for the existence of these wars I do see irradiated people as certainly I mean especially with Rachel at the end as the image of you know physically disfigured but morally pure figure which of course there's all sorts of issues with sort of that depiction of disability in a lot of contemporary media I think is you know you know that's that's something that I think people are more careful about now but certainly in it makes absolute sense, you know, like Jesus healing a leper. Like, yeah, this ugly, unwanted, sick person being healed, being saved. So, yeah, I think that's something we have again here. So I definitely think it's it's the image of the innocent.
0: And it's interesting because it's like, is the Jewish Messiah coming from the irradiated people? Which further <laughs> makes this idea, you know, even though obviously different, but Maybe similar in Miller's mind. But, I mean, I think that's basically everything I wanted to ask you. So, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we sign off?
1: Yeah, what what did you notice the second time reading it, having just read it twice, like, back-to-back back recently?
0: I think the biggest things that I noticed that really stood out to me was I really enjoyed the little Easter eggs from the previous stories in them. Like the fact that in the third one, Cersei is reading the poet's like book and being like, the poet is this dude who's at the Abbey in the second story. And like, some people say he's he's the saint eyeball, but he couldn't possibly be. Yeah. And I guess I also appreciated the fact that like everyone who dies becomes a saint sooner or later in this book. Yes, yeah. And I enjoyed that. I also, I didn't quite notice exactly how much Latin was in it the first time around. And I appreciated that. I appreciated that he took the time to like write that out and be very particular about it. And then I think I also just, I hadn't quite thought about it the first time, but thinking about it more in the second time, I was struck by how accurate the canonization process is. Really? (laughs) Yeah, well, it really is a thing. Mm-hmm. That if you have too many miracles, it's dangerous because if they can disprove one of your miracles, then the Pope will never make you a saint. Ah. Because it's such it's such a political process. Yes. And I enjoy the idea that it still is a very political process in this like wasteland America. And then I think I also I think I also just I didn't quite pick up the first time I read it, that there's like the right for life conversation in the first story with the Pope's children and in the third story. I didn't immediately think of the Pope's children in the first story as being a right for life argument. But the second time I read it through, I was like, ah, that definitely is.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's definitely different reading this now, being more aware of that conversation and especially in a a post-Revocation of Roe, America is a definite, it's a different tone. You no, know, that's that's a good point. I'll definitely, you know, the more I read this, I think the more I'll, I'll have to look for that.
0: I also think this is a book that I really feel is important because, you know, I'm comfortable saying it. I think that abortion rights should be open for everyone. But I do think if you're gonna make a right for life argument, it does have to include the irradiated hill people. And the, you know, immigrants that are living terrible lives trying to make their way into America. And just like anyone who is alive, like a right for life argument has to include that if you believe the government should be preventing abortions, then you should also believe that the government should be helping people who are struggling and maintaining their lives and their quality of lives. And so I thought this was really interesting coming from a Catholic. Because I do know some Catholics, you know, who are very much like, yeah, right to life means right to life for everyone. And -hmm. it's like, well, that's not exactly how I see it, but I can respect that position. But then I also knew Catholics growing up that were like, we need to make abortion illegal, but we also need to make sure that like, no one is getting Mm -hmm. in as like an immigrant and we'll, like, support these groups that convince women to keep babies. But we, will, like, won't support groups that, like, give these women, like, money to, like, look after their babies once they've had them. So I think it's, like, I guess I appreciated a very, like, honest, complete argument coming from a Catholic author, you know?
1: Yeah, I did think it was a pretty Christian book in the cliché, like, you know, love thy neighbor sense. I think it was... I think all of the, the characters do show mm-hmm. genuine care, like genuine love and care for for the people around them. You know, I think it's certainly I, I don't think it would be too charitable of a reading to, to really focus on that of like it's you know, it's less about unborn babies and more about, you know, people disfigured by war and innocence in a broader sense than I think the, the contemporary. I mean, especially just given that so much of the abortion political version of abortion that exists in America, like the political, as a, as a political concept, not as a medical procedure, is because of, of evangelicals, of pre- predominantly Southern evangelicals rather than a Catholic approach. And I think those, there's much more of a classic Christian view of charity and love in this book than we get when we're talking about abortion from an evangelical perspective.
0: Yeah, it's true. I just think they've done job of radicalizing the narrative in the state yeah i mean the school that i grew up at they sent people to they like walk for life in dc every year yeah and it was always like Ooh.
1: yeah and it's interesting because that's that's a political thing not a religious thing I mean, but they became the same thing in the seventies. Like that was, that's, that's tactical. That is actually, that is a part of the the project 2025 strategy. Like that is old school heritage foundation stuff.
0: Yeah. And though I think it's kind of like one of the things where I feel like Miller is very brave in this book for his stance, but Mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't that way out of the way in 1959. Maybe lots of Catholics thought that way. I just don't really know.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we have to remember that, you know, that Roe Roe happened in the 60s and was settled for decades.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I recently finished a book that is excellent that I would really recommend called Bad Sex. That is sort of like a mixture between like why is like getting like good sex so hard for women. But like it also has like an abortion conversation at one point in it. And it's this one woman and she goes back and forth between like history and her life. And mm-hmm. her mom was a really prominent activist in like the 1960s. And she found out later in life that her mom got an abortion in 1964. And she was really surprised by that. But then talking with people from that time, she realized that for like three to four years there, it wasn't actually a discussion. And her mom didn't feel the need to talk about it because it wasn't so political.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a medical procedure that has existed for the entirety of human history.
0: Yeah. Or sorry, it would have been 1974, right Right after Roe v. Wade was settled.
1: So just because I know we're running out of time, I think the last point I want to make is I love the geopolitics of this book. I would love, I think there's some really interesting readings to be done about indigeneity in the book that I don't think it's not how they were initially written, but I think There are purposefully a lot of echoes of, you know, uh, you know, the the stuff with like Laredo versus Texarkana, like the imagery of Plains nomads, and all of these things, which I think in the book are implicitly white settlers and the descendants of white settlers. But a lot of the imagery is is quite clearly reminiscent of of Plains Indians and Comanche indigenous folks.
0: Well, Francis is Utah.
1: We but he's I don't think he's Utah I don't think he's Ute. Like I don't think he is he's he's not native in our reading of it.
0: But he sees himself as native. Yes. Which is very interesting.
1: Yeah, because it's been it's been hundreds of years and that memory of the settler colonial state has has peered a bit. So that's it's an interesting thing that I would love to explore more. Is like in this book they're calling him like of Utah and that's kind of a joke. Mm-hmm and you know they're describing you know people from denver and stuff like this as if they are tribes or as if they are nations because politically they effectively are in the book so i think there's some interesting things about about perceptions of indigeneity here that you could possibly read into
0: yeah because that was something that i i really didn't even pick up at all on my first time reading through but the second time i was kind of thinking about is like are there any like actually indigenous people left
1: yeah, but they're, they're referenced because Prior Cherokee is such an early character and is such a specific name. Like, I, I do think that Miller is purposefully referencing the fact that now these people are perceiving themselves as Native, even though they aren't on the, you know, time immemorial scale.
0: Yeah, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, they've lost all of their culture and history. So who are they not to believe They're native, I guess. I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. I wonder, I would have dearly loved to ask Miller if in his mind all these characters are white or not, since he never really tells us what many of them look like.
1: Yeah, and that's also not a topic that existed in the serialized like, you know, in pulp sci-fi of of the mid-century. That didn't exist.
0: Oh no, race was not a discussion, and You know, this book is a lot better than the other ones because they just, like, don't exist, I guess. But there's just, like, not really female characters in this book. And most of the books of the era did have female characters, but they were like, ooh, look, big boobies. Let's have sex with them.
1: Yeah. Whereas this, I mean, this one, it makes sense because it's, you know, it takes place in abbeys uh, of, you know, of just male orders. But, uh, yeah, and then the, the female figures we get are, what, are mothers and Mary figures.
0: Yes. And in the last story, there's the two sort of female characters. Not really. But there's the one woman who runs into one of the guy's rooms and sees him naked. Yeah. Apparently he's just hanging out naked in one of the group rooms. That's a little weird. I can't blame him. (laughs) I suppose. Just vibing. Just living his best life. But it's... I'm not
1: going to wear pants at the end of the world.
0: (laughs) I suppose. I guess if you feel like you're going to die tomorrow. But then also, so there are there are female members of the order of the third story we just don't hear about them yes and then there's also the woman who has the kid who has radioactive who the abbot is trying to convince not to go to the facility and she doesn't ever get really a name or a personality or the ability to make decisions for herself
1: yeah there's also a lady reporter
0: oh yes there is a lady reporter who is barking at the president I I have to admit I don't remember much of what she said though
1: no so yeah no there's definitely that's that is a very, it's a book about men, which I think makes a ton of sense in the Catholic context. I don't think actually harms the book all that much, but it would, there's, I think, you know, this is one of those things where I would love to read more works in the same world. And I know that there are sequels and I have not read them.
0: Well, there's one sequel that he started, but Walter Miller committed suicide before he finished it. So it was finished by his friend, Terry Bisson, and it takes place after the Texarkana story.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'd be intrigued by that. But the nice thing is you can also exist in this world largely uh, by playing the Fallout series, which is very clearly inspired by quite a bit of this. And I believe there's even a Leibovitz Easter egg in one of the games.
0: I'm gonna have to find that.
1: Yeah. The other thing is I would play uh, this modification for Crusader Kings 2 called After the End, which is some of my favorite content I've ever experienced in a video game. It was a free mod called After the End that takes place at around the same time in a post-nuclear America and it's it's just Crusader Kings but with, you know, all these fractured environments and you can become the emperor of California, which is a reference to this one sort of wacky local celebrity in San Francisco in the 1800s. Like there's just all this loving detail and there's quite a bit of reference made to to some of this source material. The other fun thing about after the end, I don't know if they had one for Crusader Kings 3, is that New York City is a trade republic in that game's systems, and I believe it's the Republic of Gotham, or like the Duchy of Gotham. And one of the families, because in in Crusader, Crusader Kings Two, you've got multiple families um, for each trade republic. One of the families is the Wayne family.
0: Oh, that's fun. And
1: the starting patron of that family is Bruce, so you can play as you can play as Batman in the year. Uh, <laughs> 2666 there's a theocratic order based in orlando called the cult of the mouse
0: that's beautiful i'm looking at the map now i want to play in the holy columbian confederacy this is beautiful i will definitely i will definitely play this it makes me think about in high school i would never go back and look at it because i'm sure it was terrible but me and my friend alexei did attempt to write a book about post-apocalypse america but it was so we wrote this in like 2016 so the premise was that after Trump became president, he made a virus that he was going to unleash on the Chinese. But then the Chinese accidentally got their hands on it, altered it so it would kill white people, <laughs> like more likely, and then dropped it. and Just watched like America be destroyed.
1: Amazing. How did you how did you do this, Catherine? You're like, uh, You're like Fahrenheit 451 predicting AirPods.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really did not know that there was gonna be a massive virus. I just thought that it would be fun to make something like that because the real idea was originally was that I wanted to write a short story about a theocratic kingdom that Mike Pence was in charge of. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, ooh, what if I just expanded this? Yeah. And Mike Pence has like a part, a part, a part of New England. It's like uh-huh. his, theoc- his theocratic kingdom that he made. Maybe, maybe I'll revive it someday. But
1: but yeah, no, there's. I I do love seeing fiction that has been influenced by this because I do think it is one of the first post-nuclear novels, and I think it's fascinating that it's it's centered around Catholicism. That that's the avenue that he took.
0: Well, Catholicism was actually basically the only religion that was used in early sci-fi because people just thought it was really like cool and funky and otherworldly and it was interesting to me yeah i
1: mean space pope is a dope concept
0: it is it's pretty cool but this is the first one that i've read that was written by a catholic and it was interesting to me because i could totally tell and i don't know if if like if you read a case of conscience if you could tell that like the author wasn't catholic but it was it was very obvious to me the difference between the two Hmm. so maybe sometime you should read it and tell me definitely Oh, also, this is the first big book that does time shifts like this. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. The idea of, you know, we're gonna stay in the same setting but jump like several years into the several hundred years into the future was really not something that was thought to be used.
1: Yeah. No, and it, it really I don't think the book would work without it. I think if the time shifts were any shorter, it wouldn't serve the text
0: no it's so good the way that they do it it's amazing should we should we sign off now
1: sure well thank you very much for this opportunity to reread the book
0: yeah i mean thanks for talking with me about it absolutely i'll have to have you on for another book in the 70s if you want to
1: definitely i think that's around the time that uh the cj cherry books started coming out which involve a lot of lions in space And I don't remember much of those, but my dad would read them to me as a kid. And what was important was that all of the main characters were like bipedal space lions.
0: I mean, that does sound cool.
1: So the cover art kicks ass.
0: I have to admit, I don't think anyone ever read me a book about lions in space. So clearly I was deprived as a child.
1: Yeah, that's that's just my dad's super cool. So that's (laughs) the difference.
0: Yeah, my dad's not cool enough to read me about lions in space. I'll have to tell him.
1: No, no, very few dads
0: are. That's what we all dream of. Oh man, that's some beautiful art for these books. Yeah, we'll definitely, I don't know if any of these want a Hugo, but we should definitely do an in-between episode for one of them. Yes. But, okay, I will have another episode out in two weeks after this. That will be Alexei and Mine's Stranger in a Strange Land. So people can tune in for that. And bye.